Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And we were having some fun earlier with our guest who will have joined us just in a moment. Lou, I'm always looking forward to Chris Keel's report, Dr. Chris Keel, I should say, with Armada Corporate Intelligence, because he at least adds a little levity to the situation. Is that because he's a medical doctor or because he's an economic doctor? (laughs) (laughs) He's an economic doctor. So he can operate the patient's Truly, yeah, an economic doctor. I, I, I can't help you a bit with that sore shoulder of yours. Yeah, so. Okay, <laughs> so um, uh, Dr. Chris, uh, we uh, we received your report uh, dated December 31st, so why don't we get right into it? And uh, there's a couple of things that I have some very serious questions, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, appreciate, and perhaps they'll read your report. There you go. Well, by the way, we might as as well start with your question. Well, let's start with uh, the combined sectors of your uh, report. Indeed. And your your question would be? Well, the question would be that uh, how come we're not dancing in the street? Over this report, and I, well, I would also say, I would also say not to hang you out to dry. That the ISM report, also that came out uh, last week, also showed some indications that we've got some issues going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think both reports are more or less in sync. I mean, you have seen, particularly with the ISM, a real split between the service side and the manufacturing side. Manufacturing has been in decline now for five months in a row, and the service sector has kind of been holding its own. You see a little bit of that with the CMI as well. Uh, Manufacturing has had more struggles than the service sector. The service sector for our index is heavily weighted towards retail. So you end up getting a lot of variability this time of year because of the holiday season. And we will see strength in November, even into December, that we probably won't see in January and February when people have started to confront the bills from what they did over Christmas break. Um, So it becomes a, a bit of a retrenching period. What we have seen with the CMI that is of real significance right now is a movement towards kind of consolidating people's financial position. Companies are trying not to go into 2020 with a lot of debt. So we're seeing all kinds of indications that they're catching up with their credit. There are not as many slow pays as we've seen in the past. We're not seeing as much in the way of of kind of cash flow protecting moves. And we're seeing a lot more in the way of dollar collections as companies are just trying to be more or less stable going into 2020. The watchword for the last several months has been caution. Companies are not really sure what to expect in 2020. They don't think it's going to be quite as robust as 2019 
and they're just trying to be prepared for it. On our last show, I remember relating some of the conversations that we had at Fabtech, and a lot of the big machine tool makers were kind of coming forward with this good news, bad news scenario. They said the good news is people are not canceling their orders. People are still wanting to buy our machines. The bad news is they don't want delivery right now. They're wanting to hold off until first or second quarter of 2020, which is creating a little bit of a cash flow crisis for some of these companies. They're like, yeah, well, we still have the business, but it would be nice if they were paying for it right now, too. And that, I think, is going to be one of the the areas to, to pay attention to. The good news is that we still have very strong numbers when it comes to the favorable factors. They're still in the high 50s. Some of them are still in the 60s. Sales are good. Dollar collections are good. Applications per credit are good. We still have some fairly positive uh, movement in the non-favorables. Many of those categories used to be in the 40s and have now crept back into the low 50s. And that's always a positive sign. It means it's an expansion territory, not contraction. So the news, I think, is reasonably good, um, given the fact that we're we're heading into what is traditionally kind of a slow quarter in the U.S. economy. Uh, Chris, uh, the point that you bring up about uh, they want to buy now but pay later so they'll book the orders, one of the things that we're finding at All Metals and Forge Group is that they're not necessarily objecting to the fact that, okay, we'll ship later, but give us a deposit now. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. They're, ex- they're accepting that. We're not getting a lot right. of pushback. So that might be something worthwhile for uh, your readers and our listeners to take into account. Uh, your, your orders are not necessarily being pushed off, uh, even though they are but you might get some deposits to help your cash flow today. Exactly. I mean, I think what a lot of companies are recognizing is that even though you want to delay delivery for all kinds of good reasons, you also don't want to be out of the loop when you do need the machine. You know, you don't want to be told, well, I'm sorry, you didn't pay for it before, so you're now further down the list. And I think companies definitely understand that the companies they're buying from need some sort of financial assurance as well. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing that companies are are waiting to take delivery. What seems to be happening with a lot of companies is that when the economy was booming a little bit more, people were willing to take a risk and say, look, I'm going to bid for a job. I need this machine to do that bid but I don't think I can get it if I can't tell the company I'm bidding to that I'm ready to roll right now. Now I think you're seeing companies saying, I'm going to bid for the job, and if I get it, I'm going to tell the company that I bid to that, hey, I need a few weeks to get set up. I need to get the machines in place. I need to get my training done. And if they get some cooperation from that client, then it allows them to sort of have the the security of an actual order before they start investing in machines. You're just seeing companies behave a little more carefully. They don't want to run risks. They know that this is not going to be a particularly forgiving pace of growth. We've had close to 3% growth a few times in the last few years. 
we're not going to be anywhere near that this year. It's going to be 1.7 to 2.1, which is not bad. I mean, there's a lot of countries in the world that would kill to be growing that fast, but it's also not the kind of growth that allows you to take big risks. Well, that, that's true, and, and I, I agree with that. Uh, and, and companies, as I stated uh, before, that they're not giving us pushback. They're almost thankful right. that they can book an order for six months from now, and they'll put right. up, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% deposits. Uh, it's, a, it's a cheap bank loan. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's often a, a reaction to somewhat uncertain times is that you more or less turn your your suppliers into your bankers. I mean, they're going to finance some of your operations. It keeps you from having to go in and access your line of credit or try to establish one with the bank. You're more or less symbiotic. You know, you're telling the company, look, you've got the security of having made the order. You can book this now. And I have the security of being able to hang on to my cash until I actually need the machine. I mean, it's it's the business version of layaway, um, which worked like a charm for Montgomery Wards, but maybe we shouldn't bring them up. Um, so anyway. <laughs> Only because you're on a business, Chris. Well, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, <laughs> you know it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to bring up the wrong kind of company here. You know, it's, <laughs> I just remember, <laughs> and, if, and if this doesn't date me, nothing else will. I remember that our entire livelihood that was as a child, Revolved around the layaway plan at Montgomery Ward. So, yeah, but yeah. you know the difference, of course, here is that uh, when you do a deal with your bank, they're making interest from day Correct. one, and uh, when you partner with a vendor or or a, a supplier of yours, uh, it's not costing you anything extra to put up some money up front, and uh, they're happy. That uh, you they book that you booked the order with them and didn't look to put, put, uh, book the order with uh, the competition. Exactly. I mean, it, it is very much a symbiotic relationship, and it's a good sign for both companies as far as as they're looking into the future. They're not taking a you know a depressed approach. They're not expecting the economy to collapse. They're just being as as I mentioned cautious, and I think that. After you go through a period of, of some boom and enthusiasm, it's generally a good sign for companies to become a little bit less over-enthusiastic. And, and it's, it's a good signal that the companies are still feeling secure and still feeling confident about where their business is going to be. They're just being a little bit more realistic about things like cash flow and, and their commitments. A lot of the concern right now is is focused on the global economy. We're pretty comfortable with where the U.S. economy is right now. The unemployment rate is low. The consumer is fairly confident. Most of those indicators are solid. But as soon as you start looking at the global economy, then you get nervous. Um, You recognize that major countries like Germany are in recession. China is very close to recession. The events of the last weekend have suddenly thrown oil prices back into the conversation. Um, so it just reinforces people's desire to to play their cards close to the vest. 
So the point that you bring up about this past weekend, I presume you're referring to the Iranian issue. Absolutely. I mean, and it's all the different reactions from there. I mean, it's it's the actual assassination of the Iranian general has been discussed for years. He's been, in many respects, enemy number one. But what has differentiated this attack from the attacks that we've had with Osama bin Laden or Baghdadi or any of the others, none of those people were government officials. None of those were officially part of any government at all. They were independent terrorists and, as such, had little or no international protection of any kind. You know, Suleiman was a member of a government, and that makes it a more serious situation. And what has transpired in just the few days since that took place, oil prices went up um, and have also started coming back down again. But you now have a great deal of ferment in Iraq. You have just reverberations throughout the entire region. No one quite knows how it's going to play out. It's going to be a matter of who retaliates and who retaliates against the retaliation. But it, it just reinforces people's desire to be careful. Well, thank goodness that our administration has a has their fingers on the pulse of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I don't <laughs> think that that is yeah, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> right. Being that we don't talk politics. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, Chris, uh, I, this is January, and we've now heard for, oh, gosh, over two years that jolly old England was going to leave the EU, and apparently they now are. What right. happens to them economically when that actually takes place? A lot of it will depend on whether there is a replacement for membership in the EU. Uh, what the British have been seeking is some kind of a trade arrangement um, with the European Union, which would give them some of their economic privileges. The country that they would like to emulate is Norway. Norway is not a member of the EU, but yet it has a free trade agreement with the EU, and it allows it to benefit from a lot of the trading arrangements that are common within the European Union, but it's not formally a member. The European Union has been reluctant to give Britain that option, um, though it hasn't taken it completely off the table. The big concern for the Europeans is what happens in Ireland. Yeah, they want a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. The British do not. And the Europeans would also like to see more of a acceptance of European regulation. The Norwegians have been fairly open about adhering to European regulations. The British have not. And that's been one of the issues that keeps them divided. Assuming that those get worked out, then the British economy will take a hit, but not a crippling one. They might see growth sinking into the negatives for two or three quarters and then a slow recovery. If those issues don't get worked out and it's a hard exit which cuts off any real interaction between Europe and Britain, it could mean an extended depression, um, a year or two of, of negative growth. 
You're yeah, a real cheery guy for the beginning of the year. <laughs> <laughs> what can I tell you? You know, it's cold. It's January. It's you know, it's like if you, if you want me to be, you need, what you need to do is arrange for me to be in Hawaii when you do these talks, and then you know, then I'll be then I'll be in great shape. You know. <laughs> well, we just like you to show up. That's all. <laughs> and I um, would in Hawaii, you know. I, I, yeah, that's I probably that true, yeah. right? I'd be, I'd be right in the middle of a surf lesson or something. Yeah, I'll join um, you I, over there. I, I have a question for you, uh, Chris. Uh, it was in your report, and I'm a little confused by it. Uh, and this is, this is my John McLaughlin question. So uh, right, hang right. on to your seat. So uh, there's been some question about the importance of manufacturing uh, in the U over in the U.S. and its overall economy, uh, but it's uh, it's been a, it's it's been an important uh, all along, uh, considering that the U.S. GDP is uh, almost three trillion dollars or two point seven or eight, which is larger than the GDP of. I don't know, what is India, the fourth or fifth largest country in the world? Yeah, so, yeah. So, my, so my question is, why, why do you think that manufacturing is not that big of a deal in our economy? I, I think what happens is that people have kind of poor interpretations of, of some of the statistical data. For example, you hear all the time that manufacturing only accounts for eight to nine percent of employment in the united states but that's really only because of the way we classify people in terms of what they do if you work for a manufacturer but you are not actually on the line doing manufacturing work if you work for ford but you're in accounts receivable or you're in design or you're a supervisor or any of a dozen other things you're not considered in manufacturing. If we then looked at people according to where they worked and assumed that if you work for Ford, you are in some way involved in manufacturing, suddenly the percentage of people in manufacturing is over 40%. The other thing we have to remember is that much of the service industry is in service to something. They're in service to the manufacturers. If you are an accountant, and you're working in an accounting firm that has a manufacturing practice, without manufacturing, you have no practice. So <laughs> you have another huge percentage of people who are in the manufacturing in the sense that that's where their, their work lies. You know, they are servicing that sector. So the manufacturing sector is huge in the U.S. and always has been. I think it is kind of a victim of of not promoting itself necessarily as well as, as others. We focus on the consumer, and rightly so, but the consumer needs things to consume, and many of those things are from the United States or have components that are from the United States. We often forget that much of what we make is not visible to the consumer. The consumer is not going to Walmart and buying railroad locomotives and airplanes and road building equipment and computers. You know, it's it's China and other countries make the stuff that go in Walmart. 
we make the machines that make the stuff that goes in Walmart. Well, just to support your your position about the eight, nine, ten, maybe twelve percent of uh, manufacturing representing our GDP. Uh, but Tim and I have been, you know, studying this now for five, six years, um, and you're right. Uh, actually, I'm impressed with the number of 40% that you stated. We've been uh, kind of kowtowing the 30% number, but we might mm-hmm. have to raise it based on your input uh, because that upstream and downstream uh, aspect of our economy right. is closely related to, uh, to the manufacturing. And so I, I exactly. support that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the things that countries forget that they are very connected to sort of core industries because the same thing happens with agriculture. You know, people are told, well, only 1.2% of the workforce is in agriculture. Well, yeah, that's 1% to 2% who are actually on a farm farming, but you are not paying any attention to any of the people that work for the food processors or the companies that manufacture fertilizer or pesticides or I mean okay so you eliminate Tyson and and Monsanto well yeah (laughs) those are agriculture you know if you don't have chickens you don't have Tyson it's just (laughs) kind of yes I suspect Cargill is in uh, agriculture Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> and then you start way. getting in, you get into all sorts of other things. That, for example, the second largest income earner for the American railroads is hauling grain. So you know that's part of agriculture too. You know, it's grown someplace and it has to be transported. So if we added up all of the uh, segments that uh, we we three just laid out. Would the GDP be somewhere around 130%? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, what you run into is that of the of the GDP, you've got sort of different ways to, to skin this particular apple. I mean, it's you've got the consumer that is sort of the end user of all of this sort of thing, but you've got all the economic activity that takes place before it gives to the consumer, and some of that is export-related, but much of it is domestic, and it is important for the U.S. to represent its economy as a diverse and balanced economy and, and revel in the fact that we are not in a position, for example, like the Russians, who are very commodity-driven, um, with if their economy rises and falls with the price of oil and, and and agricultural output, ours is affected by that, but it's not a be-all and end-all. Even if we have high-priced oil, we manage to benefit from it as much as, as it affects us because we're also an oil producer. So it, it helps to be a big, diverse economy, and it helps not to ignore any of the sections of that economy because they all work together. Christine, that you're involved in the uh, credit aspect of the uh, business environment, um, credit applications today, people who are applying for uh, credit, um, what's going on with that? Is that uh, improving? Is that uh, find, finding some headwinds? What's the story with that? 
Yeah, I can only speak to that kind of indirectly. The credit that I work with through the National Association for Credit Management is all trade credit. It's business credit. It has nothing to do with the banks or the credit card companies. But when you start to do the research on what's happening with consumer credit and what's happening with the the banks and the like, the consumer had become very reluctant to rely on credit in the immediate aftermath of their last recession. We got over that. Um, <laughs> we we have now been, you know, making that plastic melt. Um, we still have the attitude that I can't be broke. I still have checks. So <laughs> we are back to our our profligate ways. Um, we have noticed by we, I mean organizations like the Fed and Commerce Department and the like have noticed that banks have been a little less interested in making consumer loans accessible. Uh, They have slowed down a little bit when it comes to car loans. Um, Mortgages are low in terms of their interest rates, but they're a little harder to get. Um, The guarantees are not what they used to be. So I think consumer credit is reasonably healthy, uh, but it is beginning to get worried again just simply because of the volume. Um, people's exposure had gotten sort of under control in the aftermath of the recession, but we're kind of back to the days where we don't have much float. Uh, The average person today, if they lost their job, would need to get another one within a week um, if they wanted to stay current on their credit. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, Chris, as we look at Europe, and that's uh, certainly a concern, if uh, England is weak, Europe looks to be in real trouble. Yeah, Europe is more sensitive to what happens in France and Germany. Um, there's always been a little bit of an arm's length relationship with the British. They have never really liked being part of Europe. Um, they often don't really work in concert with the rest of the Europeans. The big concern now is the weakness of the German economy, which has been drugged down by the problems in global trade, plus the automotive sector. Um, We are obviously very connected to the automobile here, but the Europeans are not far behind, Um, and the Germans in particular are right up there with us in terms of car ownership and, and the like, and they have been seeing a decline in the auto industry that has hurt them. The latest PMIs that have come out for Europe have shown that the service sector has become stronger and the manufacturing sector has continued to be weak, even in Germany, which was a little bit of a surprise. The German consumer was a lot more active this year than people thought they would be. Um, Don't know how long that will be the case. The German consumer has tended to be more reticent in the past, but right now, they are pretty active, and they gave the economy a pretty nice Christmas. Everyone's now got their eyes on France because they're trying to undergo some very dramatic reforms of their pension system, which has provoked strikes and demonstrations, and the transit system has been shut down for a month. I mean, it's just kind of typical behavior in France. But that's an economy that's second only to Germany in terms of driving the rest of Europe. Well, uh, you have pointed out in past shows when we have had you on that there is significant trade wars all around the world, and now there's significant social unrest 
all around the world. I'm glad the U.S. is doing as well as it's doing. Well, it really it is, and it's one of those things where the U.S. economy is probably the only thing that's keeping some of these other countries afloat. I mean, so far our consumers have kept us more or less immune from the messes taking place in the world, but those messes get more and more significant, it seems, with every passing month. I mean, India is becoming more and more isolationist, more nationalistic, uh, not really a path we thought they were going to go down. We have seen a lot of ferment in Europe. Uh, so there are lots of parts of the world that are not doing very well that we thought would be doing better by now. The Mexican economy was growing at a 3% rate two years ago, but under AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez opened a door, they're now in recession. Um, it was a flip from kind of a center-right government to a center-left government, and it hasn't really worked out very well for, for Mexico. So it's we are sort of the last man standing in a lot of respects, which is good for the rest of the world. The bad news for us is that there's nobody else to sort of help us pull out of any kind of economic decline. Our biggest allies are now fighting their own battles economically and aren't in a position to give us much assistance. So uh, China is kind of the last on the list here as we work our way around the world, and I'm always curious, does China ever really go into recession? I look at their ISM numbers, and it's always positive, always positive. Well, it's it's interesting when you look at statistical gathering in China there's always a certain amount of, of distrust uh, with the numbers and there's a manipulation that takes place sometimes on a large scale sometimes on a much smaller scale realistically China is in recession when it hits 6% growth because you have a nation of a billion 400 billion people Recession and assigning it a number is kind of a convenience because what a recession really means is that your economy is not growing fast enough to provide jobs and to provide enough revenue for the business community to survive. China right now is at a point where it can't create the number of jobs that it needs to, and it's not creating enough revenue for its business community to, to thrive. They have to generate 1,300,000 jobs a month just to keep up with population growth. We are doing good when we hit 250,000 a month. Right now, they're not creating that many jobs, and it begins to weigh on the economy. Uh, China has a labor shortage. Their population is aging, and a good percentage of it now is in retirement. They don't have enough workers, just like we don't have enough workers. China still has a massively underdeveloped rural area, um, which you know we forget because we look at these thriving cities. Well, you know that's three, four hundred million people. That's more than the population of the U.S. That leaves a billion people who are not part of that growth. And the Chinese still have to figure out ways to to contend with that massive rural poor population. Uh, Chris, how much of the uh, trade wars that uh, are existing now between the U.S. and China have to do with uh, China's uh, negative uh, economy? 
I think quite a bit of it. I mean, it's it's been almost indirect because China has never sold that much to the U.S., so that's not the issue. They have not really been cut off from that market. They they are one of the major suppliers to the United States because they took market share away from any of the other countries in the world that used to sell to the U.S. They don't buy very much from us. Um, they are really being hurt by the fact that other countries have been hurt by that slowdown. The Chinese would probably have been slowing down even without the trade war, but the trade war certainly accelerated it and has deepened it. A bigger concern for the Chinese is that many of the other markets that they have been selling into aggressively have also slowed. Europe, Japan, other Asian states, uh, they were selling aggressively into Africa and Latin America. Both of those have slowed down. So it's kind of been a combination of, of factors. And that's the weakness of a country like, like China. It really survives on the basis of other countries buying its stuff. And if other countries aren't buying, they do not have a domestic market that can make up the difference. That's where the U.S. has the advantage. At the end of the day, we sell to ourselves. So as long as the consumer here is active, then we have an active economy. And as long as the unemployment rate is low, we have consumers with money. <laughs> so it's kind of a virtuous circle. As long as people can keep their jobs, they'll spend. And it also helps that Americans like to spend. The Japanese have been in trouble for 20 years because their consumers won't spend. It doesn't take much to get an American to spend. All you have to do is say, here, here's something to buy. What is it? I don't know. I'll buy it anyway. I'll figure out what it is later. You know. I, you know it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I saw something on the Internet this morning that it was an article about 19 new technology gadgets that you want to own in 2020. Right. That, exactly. that was the whole article. <laughs> I know. I know. You know and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm still sitting here, you know, trying to figure out how to set one of my new watches that I got for Christmas. I mean, it's kind of like, and people are looking at me like, why do you even have a watch? It's like, oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, China, going back to your point about their 6% uh, GDP, I mean, it wasn't that many years ago, if you believe the number, that they were at around 14 15%, 16% GDP. Yeah, yeah they were really probably closer to 10 to 12%, but still, I mean, that's double what they are now. And, yeah. and I think what you saw, that was sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when the Chinese were really just gobbling up market share from the rest of the world. And they did it because they invested heavily in infrastructure. You know, they built the roads and they built the airports and the seaports and they developed the steel plants which is kind of what set them up for problems later. I mean, they they built all that steel operation in order to finance and, and fuel their infrastructure bills. But then once they were through with infrastructure, now what do you do with all these steel operations? And in a country like ours, they would have closed because there would be no demand. But this is China. And China was like, no, we got to preserve these jobs. We're going to keep the steel operations open, and then we'll just dump the steel in the rest of the world. 
So there is, <laughs> that, that's one of the problems of dealing with a system like theirs, because it isn't a capitalistic system. It's one that is state-controlled, and businesses are kept alive simply because they employ people, whether they're actually doing anything useful or not. But, you know, what I found interesting with you know, the point that you just made, I, I've been to, over the last 10, 15 years, I've been to China quite a bit. And uh, I went to visit what was referred to as a ghost town. And uh-huh. where China built these, they built a highway out into the middle of nowhere, and then it stopped. And at the end of the highway, they built a city. And here you right. had these... Uh, 40, 50, 60 story buildings, uh, office buildings and uh, condos and so on and so forth. And there was nobody there. The only people that were there were the little Chinese ladies sweeping the sand from the Gobi Desert that would blow into town. Um, So for a period of time, five, ten years, they were paying all these people good money, good wages to build a city. And if it all exactly. collapsed, as you said, things that they would have to deal with later. And that's where they're at now. And it's not just and it's not even just the ghost cities. You go to any of the major cities and you'll find ghost buildings all over the place. Apartments that have nobody in them, office right. places that have nobody in them. The whole idea was, you know, keep people busy, uh, keep people employed and anticipate growth. And you also have the fact that Throughout China, all of these regions are competing with each other. And if one area is seeing development, well, the one next door wants development too. And so they petition to the government saying, hey, you just built this cool new airport out here. Why don't you build one for us too? And no one ever asked the question, do you have any airplanes coming in? Well, no, (laughs) but we really would like to have an airport. And it's like, okay, um, it's a little bit of the Chinese version. If you build it, they will come. Only this time it came out as if you build it, they'll ignore it. Um, <laughs> so it hasn't been as, as promising as they'd hoped. Well, that's the uh, sort of similar to what's going on here right now with uh, Wag the Dog, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, every, every culture finds itself in that dilemma of of trying to decide that if if you do something, will it result in more development? Communities compete with each other. I mean, it's it's not an unused tactic in the United States. It's just that we don't get quite as carried away as to build a city that would contain ten million people when there's nobody there. That's quite a city, quite a city. Well, Chris, we certainly appreciate your insights to things, which is why we love having you on the show once a month, and we'll look forward to you joining us again in February. When we talked with Tim Fiore for the ISM, he felt there was some underpinnings in his report that indicated that manufacturing might begin to pick up in the first quarter. So we'll watch his report and yours and be excited to talk to you in February. Sounds like a plan. I look forward to it. Talk to you gentlemen later. Thank you for joining us, and Happy New Year to you. And we've been speaking with Dr. Chris Keel, who is with Armada Corporate Intelligence. We met Chris at the Fabricators and Manufacturers International Association meeting. I think that one was in Chicago in uh, November 
which was a little chilly, uh, and we've been working with Chris ever since. Um, we've really enjoyed his insights, and we have all of our shows, including all of the past Dr. Chris shows, at msgtalkradio.com. You can look up any of them there, along with all of the other shows. And we have an umbrella company called Jacket Media Co. Jacket Media has all of the shows that we've been producing, Manufacturing Talk Radio, uh, Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, Where's Willie, uh, Women in Manufacturing, um, full-time with Amy. So uh, drop into jacketmediaco.com and see what we're up to. And thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>